Good afternoon, everybody. Mika Goodman. Can you hear me? Oh, okay. Okay. Can you hear? Uh, it's okay. 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 No, it would be it actually it would be easier if it's possible. To use the mic? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh great. Yeah, we have a, this is even better. Okay, we have the Madonna. Madonna mic. All right. Like this? Yeah. Okay. Great. Great. So does this look okay? Okay. Good evening. So here we are again, this time not to speak about God, but about Bibi. <laughs> well, actually, if you'd ask Bibi, maybe it's the same conversation. <laughs> no, but seriously, what I'd like to do is to open a conversation. I, I shared with Amy today that I feel like if I have a calling in life, is not only to try to make a difference in Israel but also to try to share the Israel that I know here in the States with friends, partners, with American Jews. And I felt like, and we had, and me and, and, and the rabbi and Amy, we, we felt that maybe before I leave Temple Emmanuel, maybe besides speaking about God and religion, we could speak about Israel and the Jews. What I'd like to put on the table is three topics. And after that, to open the conversation for Q&A and for you to ask whatever you want on whatever you want. And I'll answer everything, because I know everything. <laughs> so, it's very easy. <laughs> Me and Bibi were in the same... <laughs> so the first question I want to answer is... is um, and this is a question that's been getting all over the place, is what happened in the Israeli elections? How did Bibi get himself elected again? That's the first question. A second question is, is the renewed political relationship between the Israeli government and the Haredi community in Israel, how did that happen, and what does that mean for the Jews? And the third question I'd like to ask is Israel and Iran, and how do Israelis feel, and how do I feel about the deal that's coming up between the Obama administration and the whole deal with Iran. So those are three very different topics. When I was thinking and preparing this lecture tonight, I realized these are the burning topics. Am I right? The Netanyahu government, the relationship between Israel and the Haredim that are back and were starving and are starving. And finally, the deal with Iran. Would you agree that these, this is a okay framing for a conversation? These three topics. So let me start with the enigma. How did Bibi get elected according to all the polls he wasn't supposed to be elected? And there is a good reason why, Bibi, why, Netan, why Netanyahu was supposed to, wasn't supposed to be elected. Netanyahu, according to all the polls, is a very disliked politician in Israel. Israelis on the left, despise Netanyahu. Israelis on the right, don't trust Netanyahu. Likudniki are not crazy about Netanyahu. So how is it that one of the most disliked politicians in Israel is the only one that could be elected prime minister? How did that happen? 
Here's something I learned from an Israeli politician. In a conversation we had about the art of politics, he told me that he learned from an, an um, you know who Arthur Finkelstein is? Is he a name here? He's an American uh, political um, strategist. Okay. And he told me that Finkelstein taught him the following that when you do surveys, when you do polls, and you want to really know what a person is going to vote for, the question is not, at least not in Israel, not what are the policies that person identifies with. Because if it was po- about policies, so if the majority of people would want a certain policy, and then the politician would change his mind and adapt to that policy, he'd get elected, or she'd get elected. But in Israel, it's never about policy. We don't vote for whoever thinks like we are, like we think. We vote for the po- policy that we believe in. That's not how we Israelis vote. Maybe it's not also the way you guys vote here. He said that Israelis don't vote for someone who thinks like them, but Israelis vote for someone that is like them. That is like them. Like you vote for someone you think he's, he's kind of like me. He's kind of like me. Really, when people go into the voting ballot, they vote for themselves. I don't vote for the person who represents my ideas. I'm one of the person that is kind of like me. Now, here's a political enigma. In what sense do the voters of Netanyahu feel like Netanyahu is like them? Netanyahu is extremely different than his voters. Now, who are Netanyahu voters? Well, there are four groups. It's an impossible coalition of four groups. One group are immigrants from Russia. It's a large group in Israel. Many of them voted for Netanyahu. A second group, it's not necessarily in this order, are Mizrahi Israelis. Immigrants from Muslim, from Arab countries in the 1950s and 60s. A third group are settlers and religious Zionists. A fourth group is old school disciples of Jabotinsky, revisionists, secular right-wingers. It's a small group, but it's an important group. What do these four groups have in common? What does a Russian Jew have in common with a Jew that immigrated from Morocco? The Russian Jew is usually anti-religious. The Jew that immigrated from Morocco is usually very traditional. They don't have much in common. What do Russian Jews, which are anti-religious many times, not all the time, many times, have in common with religious Zionists? Nothing. The truth is that the Bibi coalition, they have nothing in common. Besides one thing, they all feel like they were rejected. You got that? All right. They all feel like they are immigrants immigrants that never really arrived. We were never really accepted. We never really became a part of the great Israeli story. We were rejected by the real Israelis. We were rejected by this invisible by Israel. They never accepted us. They always thought of us as outsiders. 
Now, every one of these groups are carrying that sentiment. And they look at Bibi, and Bibi managed to convince them that he's also the outsider. <laughs> Bibi managed to convince them that he's also rejected. And when they voted for Bibi, they voted for themselves. They voted for someone who personifies their sense of rejection by the elites, by the power. So here's a political enigma. Bibi's in power for nine years. He is the establishment. And they voted for him because he's rejected by the establishment. <laughs> the paradox of this last elections was, I, I think Rabbi Tommy has said this word today. When we're, I'm here. Oh, you're here. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, in Israel, there's sometimes like anarchists don't like to vote for the establishment, so they vote for a party that has no chance, but they vote for him anyway just as protest. In Israel, we call it Hatzba'at Mecha'a, where your vote is not as you vote as a protest. Well, as an Israeli analyst put it, only in Israel, Israel is so crazy that only in Israel. Could voting for the prime minister be considered a protest? <laughs> now, how did Bibi pull it off? How can Netanyahu be the outsider, be considered the outsider, while he is in the heart of power? How can voting for him being the protest against the establishment when he is the establishment? How does he pull that off? Well, here's the amazing story of this elections. And again, they didn't vote for his policies. They didn't vote for his worldview. They voted because they felt that this person is just like them. They're poor. He's rich. <laughs> They're outsiders, screwed by the establishment. According to their narrative, he is the establishment. And, and he is one like them. How did he pull that off? Well, he had a lot of help. And the help that he had was tremendous amount of money invested in a campaign against Netanyahu. Uh, the largest newspaper in Israel, Yediot Achonot, was a part of the anti-Netanyahu campaign. Haaretz magazine is a part of the anti-Netanyahu campaign. Many Israelis thought that Barack Obama was part of the anti-Netanyahu campaign. And they see Netanyahu being attacked by all the elites, by the great newspapers, by the academics. And all this money is poured in from all over the world to overthrow Netanyahu. And when he was attacked from all over the place, you know what they said? We're voting for Bibi. We're voting for Bibi. I call up a friend of mine. I say that, see, what happened was all the money that was invested in overthrowing Bibi, that's the money that got him elected. Because his base felt, all these four camps felt like, that suddenly he, he is like us. He's rejected. He's not a part. He's not a part of the narrative. He's someone like me. This election is a story, an amazing story of how everything backfired. The day after the elections, I call up a close friend of mine that thinks he has exact opposite worldview of Netanyahu on almost any level. Who would you vote for? Bibi. <laughs> Why do you vote for Bibi? Here's his answer. 
Because screw them, that's why. Okay, if you can understand the depth of that answer, you can understand. <laughs> Anyone that feels like there is a them out there, that's how outsiders feel like, there is a them out there. And when Netanyahu is attacked by them, then he's one of us. Netanyahu is them. But once he was attacked by them, he's one of us. This was a tremendous backfire of, so, of a lot of money, campaign, newspapers. They went after Bibi, and anyone they went after Bibi got Netanyahu elected. So I think this is a reading I would like to offer you about the, Israel, about the elections in Israel. Israelis didn't vote for a certain policy. They didn't vote for an idea. They didn't vote for a person. They voted for themselves. You know Monty Python? Okay. And now for something completely different. Okay, I'd like to touch another issue. Afterwards, we'll open this all for conversation, okay? We'll open this the whole thing up. Is it okay if I move now to, some, to the Haredi community, okay? Okay, so Netanyahu was elected. He builds a very stable coalition. <laughs> now, if, if anyone, that was a joke because in Israel, <laughs> in Israel, in order to have a state, um, you have to have 61 MKs voting you in, 61 out of 120. And therefore, stable government is considered a government that can't be overthrown by one party. Meaning, if Netanyahu had 70 MKs backing him, and Naftali Bennett has 8 MKs, what does that mean? That if the AKs of Netanyahu joined the opposition and fought against Bibi, He's still safe. Meaning he's immune. He needs two parties to gang up against him in order to fall. That's considered a stable government. When one party can overthrow you, that's a not stable government. Well, Netanyahu put himself in a situation now. It's not that he needs an entire party to overthrow him. It's enough to have one member of Knesset to fire the prime minister. That's how stable the Israeli government is. One member of Knesset that changed sides, and instead of it being 61, 61, 59, so what is it? 61, 59, right? One moves, and the entire math changes, and he falls. One. Now, I don't know if you ever heard of it, members of the Israeli Knesset. They're not always that easy to control. One MK that BB got into a fight with. Not that that's possible. It might happen. Yeah. and they got, So it's a very unstable government. It doesn't take a party to overthrow BB, which is unstable. It takes one MK. One frustrated MK from Shas. One MK from Naftali Bennett's party that wants to punish Naftali for something and he overthrows the Netanyahu government. That's all it takes. One MK. This situation is not very good for Netanyahu. It's very good for the parties in the Netanyahu coalition. That gives them a tremendous amount of power. There are two parties in this, parties in this coalition that felt like they deserve a lot. Yahaduta Torah the party that represents the Ashkenazi, the European Haredi community, 
and Shas, the party that represents the Mizrahi, the Sephardi Haredi community. And they were left out from the past government, from the last government. They were left out. And now they're back. And it's payback time. <laughs> and here's what I can only consider a very sad story. The last Netanyahu government had tremendous achievements. Here's some of them. Yair Lapid, the Sara um, Otsar, uh, the finance minister, he led a policy that's trying to change a traditional Israeli policy where he thought is unhealthy and majority of Israelis think is unhealthy. It's the following policy. In Israel, the Haredi community is the only community not only in the Jewish world but also in Jewish history that as a community doesn't work. I mean, the majority of women work and the majority of men are not part of the official workforce. And that has historical reasons. Throughout our tradition, communities are always enabled some people to learn Torah. And they were willing to work harder so they won't have to work. Communities enabled study of Torah by working. The first time in Jewish history, this isn't a community that enables study of Torah, but this is a community that as a community studies Torah. It's called by an Israeli academic, Kehila Lomedit. A community, not a community that enables learning, but a community that learns. A community that enables learning works harder in order to enable the best of the population not to work. This is not a community that works harder so some won't work. This is a community that doesn't work because they found a better system. What's the better system? There's other Israelis that work. <laughs> and the paradox is the other Israelis that work so the Haredim won't work are Israelis that don't believe in the value of, the, of studying Torah. So Israelis that don't believe in the value of study Torah enable entire community not to work and study Torah. How did that happen? Well, you just forgot the answer because of the structure of Israeli politics. It also has other historical roots. Back in the early 1950s, when Ben Gurion struck a deal and built what we call the status quo between Israel and the Haredi community, you know what Ben Gurion thought when he made the deal with them? That they don't have to go to the army, we'll finance the yeshiva world, everything is okay. You know what he thought, and not only he, but most Israelis, not only most Israelis, most Western people thought back in the 50s, they thought that religion is dying. People used to think that secularization and modernization are the same thing. The process of modernization is a process of secularization. Which means secularism is part of our past. Sorry, religion is part of our past. Secularism is the future. And if in the present's transition, so if you bump into someone that's from, what are you really looking at? Someone from the past, a representative of the past. And add to this the fact that after World War II, the entire yeshiva world was destroyed, but Gurion thought it's a nice thing to give them a break. It's a nice thing to build a museum for the Judaism that's dying. It's a nice thing. It's a nice idea. Because we need to remember that world that's dying. We need a museum, and that's what the Haredi world was supposed to be. 
a museum for the Judaism that was before the new Israeli secular Jew took over. But there's a problem. <laughs> the museum grew, and then it grew more. And quite frankly, many Israelis feel like maybe really put, putting them in the museum pretty soon. And the whole model didn't work anymore. One of the paradoxes is, I don't want to say this in Hebrew, I hope I'll try to say this directly in English, that the Haredi community, which is the most unproductive community in Israel, is the most reproductive community in Israel. <laughs> Did I say that right? Perfect. Okay. Reproductive means a lot of kids? Okay, good. I, thank you. And that's a problem. I mean, it's nice. I'm for a lot of Jewish babies. But there's a problem. Where the, the community that works, that doesn't produce, that doesn't, that, that's not less, least productive, that's the community that's growing. And the community that does, that is productive, is much less reproductive. Now, as a result of this, middle-class Israelis will not be able to carry on their backs. The Haredi community, it's not working. And because it didn't work, so many Israelis, last election, voted for Yair Lapid and had a clear voice. The party's over. The Haredim should join the workforce. They should join the army. And yet, Lapid cuts off billions of shekels to the Haredi world, making their economic model unsustainable, forcing change within the Haredi world, saying, we will invest money, but we'll invest money in programs that will empower Haredim to join the workforce. It was, and it started to happen. It's not easy. It's slow. People were critical about it. It's not happening quick enough because people want everything now. Like peace. But it started to happen. And other important things started to happen. See, the other problem we have with the Haredim is that they don't... Um, I sound very anti-Haredi now. I want to say they're our brothers and I love them. I'm serious. I'm serious. Something else started to happen. Now they're slowly but surely starting to join the workforce. Starting to join the army. Another problem we have with the Haredim is not only that they don't go to the army, not only that that's that they're not part of the workforce, not only are we carrying them our backs from the point of view of security and economically, they control Judaism in Israel. So the ones that we support economically are in control of us religiously. What kind of a deal is that? I'm a secular Israeli, I get married, I have to go through the Haredi system. I want to get a divorce, it happens, I have to go through the Haredi system. I want to die, well, <laughs> when you die, you have to go through the Haredi burial system. So those Haredim, that are not guarding me, not fighting with me, I'm financing them, they're controlling me, when it counts in very sensitive parts of my life. Well, last, so these are serious. So that also has to end. So these are important roles that the last Netanyahu government had. And one of the um, starting points for this conversation was a, and this is very important for American Jews to know, and some of you probably know, and, but to understand, and, and to understand, is that the last Netanyahu government started reforming the whole conversion system in Israel. 
started to reform the conversion system in Israel. Now, it's not where you want it to be, but it's a big step towards that direction. And that is, if the conversion system in Israel is centralized, the last Netanyahu government tried to decentralize it. Meaning that every um, rabbi of every city could create his own Beit Din for conversion. Which means a more liberal or more open-minded rabbi like, you know, Shlomo Riskin from Ephrat, he could have his own Beit Din. And make it a lot easier to convert. But it's even better than that because uh, you don't have to be a member, a citizen of Ephrat to go to Riskin's Beit Din. You could be in Kiryat Shmon and go to Ephrat. You could be in Be'er Sheva and go to Ephrat. And every time you go to a Beit Din, you pay... Um, um, money. <laughs> yeah, money. Yeah, that's what you pay. Yeah. And as a result, so all the Batei Din would want you to come to convert with them. So there'd be a free market. And what would the free market, the competition do? It would create a dynamic where conversion will start liberalizing itself in Israel. It was a great step in the right direction. That's something the last Netanyahu government did. You see, when Netanyahu was in power last time, we never gave him credit for any of this. But now that we're losing all this, we're saying, hey, that was a nice government. <laughs> we want that back. All that, that, we, we, that was... So, and now the Haredim are back. And guess what the first thing they're asking for? Canceling the conversion reforms. Let's centralize it again. Canceling the law forcing them to join the army. Canceling all the, the rechanneling of the money to programs that are trying to help them join the workforce to programs up to financing the Yeshiva world all over again. So good luck with that. <laughs> so... Um, where is this taking us? It's, um, I want to share one thing about our relationship with the Haredi community. It's not an easy relationship. Let me try to be subtle here. Israel, mainstream Israelis, I'll be subtle now, don't like Haredi. <laughs> Should I be less subtle? <laughs> and here's a conversation I have with my students in Ain Prat but our relationship with the Haredi community. Here's a problem that Haredim have, and it's a very big problem. When a Haredi wants to finally join the workforce in Israel, goes through a lot. Social sanctions, you shouldn't do that, it's scary. Puts himself or herself through an education. Finally comes to a job interview. And now he's, he's in Herzliya, secular person is now interviewing the Haredi. And what is the person that's interviewing the Haredi thinking while he's interviewing the Haredi? What are you thinking now? Oh my God, if he's going to join a workplace, what's going to happen the next day? I'll probably put like pictures of rabbis on the wall. <laughs> Demand the new dress code. Change the entire... It will be a nightmare. You know what? Um, you don't have a job. And here's, <laughs> so I tell my students in Ain Prat that there's also truth here, that we're victims of our hatred of the Haredi. Because we think we hate them because they don't work. 
But it's also true that they don't work because we hate them. You see, Israelis really want Haredim to start working. Just not <laughs> in their workplace. <laughs> but they should start working because, you know, the model doesn't work anymore. I want to share with you something and I have no evidence to back what I'm going to say. I don't. I think the Haredi community is going to change. I think eventually they will start joining the army and the workforce. I think conversion will change in Israel. I think there's very powerful, um, there's a very powerful zechim, um, stream, force, a spiritual, cultural, very powerful stream in Israel that's going to push Israel forward. And I have no evidence to back this, but I believe that this Netanyahu government is a bump in the road. Eventually, eventually, conversion will go through reform in Israel. And Judaism will become more of a free market in Israel. And the less, the more the state of Israel will be liberalized Jewishly, the more Jewish our society, our Israeli society, will become. Now I know that you're looking now at the Yahweh government and it seems like, um, but it doesn't look that way. Yeah, that's true. That's true, it doesn't look that way. But this Netanyahu government, the bad news is that it's so weak and the good news is that it's so weak. And it's very, very complicated. And I guess what I want to take from the Haredim part of our conversation is that it's very complicated. I want to share with you my optimism that it's a bump in the road and there's a very large force for change in Israel now. And I think that's the force that's going to win. That's where history is going. At the same time, this is where history is. It's now going back. Okay? And, and now for something completely different. Iran. <laughs> Iran. The Netanyahu government didn't have many, didn't have a great campaign. Had only one great move in its campaign. And that was here. And uh, the more... Uh, by the way, what, what got Netanyahu popular in Israel as a result of his speech in Congress is not the speech. It was nice. It was a very nice speech. But that's not what made him popular. It was the fact that so many Israelis got so pissed off because of that speech. That's what made him popular. <laughs> That's what strengthened him in his base. That's part of what made him feel he was so attacked. So all the Israelis that feel like they're always attacked felt like Bibi is one of us. It was the reaction to that speech more than it was the speech. But the speech made a lot of sense. It was a very important speech. And even if we question the motivation of Netanyahu it's very hard to question the content of Netanyahu, of that speech. I want to share something very, very controversial. And now this is not me speaking. I like to say I represent 70% of the Israelis. Now I don't. When it comes to Iran, I represent a very small minority in Israel. I don't know if this deal that's being now born 
and it might come through with Iran. I don't, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. Okay, I said that and I survived. I can continue. <laughs> On many, many levels, that's right. Very many, many levels. But let's start with... Well, first of all, we have to look at the deal and examine the deal and learn the deal. And it varies. And, but if the deal is the following deal, if the deal is the following deal, that we get to send whenever we want to wherever we want. Um, if, I'm saying if. That's not, I mean, there is different, but if. Inspectors. Inspectors. So that so if that so that the meaning is that this deal is not crippling the ability of Iran to achieve a bomb. Okay, it takes them back a year. Israel thinks less. That's not really crippling their ability to achieve a bomb. That's true. But what it is crippling is their motivation to achieve a bomb. This deal is a move on the motivation of Iran, not on the abilities of Iran. And what it's doing is it's taking the entire set of sanctions and changing the way that set of sanctions is motivating Iran. Now the motivation is like this. There's not sanctions. And if you'll continue building Iran at the bomb, so the sanctions will continue to strangle your economy. What happens if we take the sanctions off and the, strength, the sanctions are not the carrot anymore, but they're the stick. They're not what we'll give you if you'll stop building the bomb. It's what we'll impose on you if you continue to build the bomb. It's turning the motivation around. And once people in Iran have fresh air and economy is back, and there's a sense we don't want to lose this, Maybe so. It's so there'll be very strong motivation not to continue the project. So, but and that's assuming that there is a big if here. That inspectors can go wherever they want, whenever they want. And if that's so, so that's so that means that, that at least for ten years, Iran won't have the motivation to build a bomb. Even so, what this does do, it doesn't change radically the ability here. Netanyahu is right. But it does have a tremendous impact on the motivation. It's a move on the will and on the capacity. That's the move, I think, the move here. Now, there's a lot of questions here. Okay, what if... Here's a question. What if they cheat? What if they cheat? It's a good question. But here's the problem. If they cheat... And we can't catch them. So, there's a pair, like, what's the alternative? Let's say the alternative is for us to bomb Iran. For us to send our air force to 17 different sites, 19,000 centrifuges, 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 what? 19,000, yeah, 19,000 centrifuges in many, many locations. Let's say, now, in order for the strike on Iran to be effective, we need to have intel. We need to know where it is. But here it is. If we have intel where it is, we can use that intel to set inspectors, right? According to this new deal. So if, to say, and you see, here's the thing. It's impossible 
that a military strike in Iran is more effective than inspections, because by definition, if you have the intel, you could send inspectors. And if there's a place that inspectors don't know where it is, well, in any case, you don't have the intel to send your air force over there. You understand what I'm saying? Like a situation where anything, where, where if you don't have enough intelligence that will enable the Iranians to cheat the inspectors, that means you also don't have enough in, uh, intelligence for an airstrike or a, mil or a ground strike on Iran. And what I'm saying is the following, and it's true that it's very, very possible that 10 years from now, they'll go for the bomb. That is true. But 10 years from now, I mean, the entire game Israel is playing with, playing with Iran, and maybe the West was playing with Iran until now, was the following game. Since we're not attacking Iran, but we are doing is um, undercover attempts to um, sabotage, according to foreign sources, to sabotage the Iranian project. So what we're doing, we're trying to always delay it, delay it more, delay it more. Hoping that because we're delaying, the, you know, you know, every year, next year, they're achieving a bomb? That's been happening for the, past, for the past 20 years. So something here was working, delaying it. And why are they wanting to delay it all the time? Because the real question was, what's going to happen first? A revolution in Iran or, in, or a nuclear Iran? And what, these, what, the, what the, the game we were playing the whole time was, can we delay the bomb enough for the inner process in Iran to happen? Can we do that? Can we pull that off? What's going to happen first? Now, we don't know what's going to happen. But delaying the bomb 10 years gives, ten, gives us gives a window opportunity of 10 years for regime change to happen in Iran. And guess what? If it doesn't happen 10 years from now, well, we're back to where we are today with the same options we have today, hopefully with much better military. With, we, we have much better technology and military capability to take out Iran. For all these reasons, I don't think the deal with Iran, I mean, the best, I think the best thing would be if we have perfect intelligence and an airstrike would take it out. It seems like we don't have. Second best is that we could continue with heavy, heavy sanctions and Iran will collapse. There's a problem. It seems like to continue with the sanctions, you need to have China and Russia with you. Guess what? Russia's Putin is not going to stay in the game. China is not going to stay in the game. So it seems like we're out of options. We probably don't have enough intel for an airstrike. We probably don't have enough political capital to keep China and Russia in the game. What do we have? We have a deal that what it does, it cripples their will for 10 years. And 10 years, hoping, hopefully, 10 years from now, there'll be a regime change. And if it won't, we'll be back to where we are now. In the meantime, it takes the Iran bomb off the table where we can deal with other problems, and we have other problems. What I just share with you is not the position of most Israelis. Most Israelis across the board are with Netanyahu on this issue. Most Israelis across the board believe that this deal with Iran is extremely dangerous. When I say most Israelis, that's right and left. That's not the outsiders, it's also the insiders. Most Israelis feel that this deal with Iran is dangerous, and because this deal with Iran is led by 
the, by the Obama administration. So just try to think how Israelis are thinking about this. If this deal is not giving us more time for regime change in Iran, all this stuff. But if this deal is guaranteeing, like Netanyahu thinks, that Iran will achieve a bomb, and America's part of this deal, what does that make America? Israelis are less and less seeing America as an ally. They're seeing it as a seeing America as a threat, as weird as it sounds, and vice versa. Different countries in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Saudi Arabia used to be a threat. Suddenly, Saudi Arabia seems like an ally. Now, this is a great achievement of the Obama government. <laughs> Uh, the Obama administration. I mean, the Obama administration always tried to push Israel closer to Arab countries. But finally, when we're getting close to an Arab country, it's not inspired by the administration. It's actually against the administration. So that's a very nice achievement. That's a legacy of, of the Obama of the Obama. So this is how most Israelis feel. And they're behind it. And you have 100%. Bougie Herzog... Labor, all labor are behind it and now 100% when it comes to Iran and when it comes to this deal. It's a very controversial deal. What I share with you is my opinion. I happen to be right, but it's... <laughs> I'm in a minority and I have a feeling that also among American Jewish community, I feel like I'm also... I'm, 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 I'm in a minority. So these are three issues I try to address. The big Iran problem the internal relationship between Israel and the Haredi community and the elections that brought Netanyahu to power. Okay. Um, does anybody have any questions? Uh, great. Uh, let me just ask everybody, please make your question short. Not a speech, a short question. I guess I'm going to use your words in the question. You said the majority of Israelis, maybe not with you, on the issue of Iran. Maybe that's why they vote for you. Maybe that's why they vote for you. Should we do one by one? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Interestingly enough, the Iran issue wasn't an issue in the Israeli elections. It wasn't about Iran. The major issue that dominated the Israeli conversation, the Israeli campaigns, was house prices. Was real estate, was the price of real estate in Israel. Ever since 2007, real estate prices went up more than doubled itself. Which means, ever since 2007, which means in Israel we have two classes. The class that bought a house before 2007? <laughs> Serious. And the class that bought a house after 2007. There's just two different people. By an accident. So that's a very serious problem in Israel. And that's part of what Israelis were, were discussing. And uh, corruption was a piece. Iran, interestingly enough, wasn't a major piece. That's why I tried to make the argument that when he came and spoke about Iran, it wasn't... Iran that they voted for. It was the sense that Bibi is attacked, he's persecuted, he's just like me. 
Very interesting. The answer is absolutely no. Okay, he's saying, didn't Sony Israelis, by the way, Sony Israelis did go for this. I mean, actually, the, camp, the right-wing camp got weaker this election. Like the Israelis. There wasn't a real ideological shift in Israel. Just the right voted for Netanyahu and not for small, smaller parties. That was the main difference. And they voted for Netanyahu because he's like that. But um, the Palestinian, interestingly enough, the word peace wasn't mentioned by Labour Party this elections. Promise to build settlements wasn't mentioned by Lieberman or by Likud, only by Naftali Bennett. Meaning the right didn't run for, I'll build you more settlements. The left didn't write for, I'll bring you peace in our times. Those were not the issues. You see, settlements used to be an issue. In the 1990s, settlements seemed like an amazing idea. The 1990s, peace seemed like a real possibility. In 2014, both issues weren't on the table. Likud didn't speak about settlements. Labor didn't speak about peace. The great ideologies that governed the Israeli conversation collapsed. The idea of peace, the idea of redemptive settlements don't work anymore. And we're speaking about prices of cottages. We're thinking about big threats like Iran. We're speaking about prices of, 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 uh, of, of homes. We're not speaking about big dreams. Israel is a society that's out of dreams. You mentioned Iran in terms of the uh, nuclear threat. But Iran is more than just a nuclear threat. Yes. But obviously, you, we all know what it is. So, with your theory that by lifting sanctions, Iran will be dead, and that's a fact will be worse, because they'll have more money, they'll sell yes. their oil, they'll have more money, etc., etc., for the other threat of Hamas and Hezbollah, which at this moment is probably more important than the Libya threat. Yes. It's an important point. Let me say, I think to block Iran from a bomb is, I think, a very important Israeli priority when it comes to our national security. Because once Iran receives a bomb, then Hezbollah become much more dangerous. Then Hamas become much more dangerous. Then the possibility of Iran entering the West Bank becomes much more dangerous. And so I think anything that will stop the bomb is more important. Now, we, we're out of options. We're out of options. It's possible, I don't know, I don't know the intel. There was a window in the winter, in the spring of 2012 and 2011, where there's a window for an airstrike. And we lost that opportunity. There seems like there was a disagreement within the Netanyahu government. And Netanyahu lost the argument. It seems like we don't really know the, 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 the facts. We lost the possibility for airstrike. Now that airstrike is out is not one of the options. Because they built this gigantic, gigantic... They built a, uh, in, a, in a holy city called Qum. There's this big uh, mountain. And in the mountain, they built a nuclear facility. It's saying that we can't just bomb a mountain. It's something that I guess we can't do. And everything that's happening there is irreversible. The only way into that mountain is through inspectors. 
That's why we, we maybe was, maybe this was we had more cards, bargaining cards, two years ago. But this is where we are now. And it seems like the only way to stop Iran, which is three months away from a bomb now, if we can't stop them using, mil- using a military strike, the only way to stop them is diplomatically. That's the card that we have to play. And to risk that, to risk that is to risk the entire Middle East. So it's true. The only way we could cash in the sanctions now, we have to cash them in now, is to delay in 10 years. And to hope that 10 years, there's regime change. And if not, hopefully, during that 10 years, we'll build the technology to do what the pain, to make the painful decision we'll have to make. Uh, Lloyd? Yeah, you said that um, the Russians and the Sephardic and the Haredi voted for Likud, mm. not their own party? No, not the Haredi, the religious Zionists. The knitted keepers. <laughs> not the black hats, if you are a stereotype it. Okay. See, they have. Well, this is this was a very interesting move by, by Netanyahu. The knitted kippahs had, according to the polls in the beginning of the campaign, eighteen mandates, eighteen seats in the Knesset, according to the polls. By the end of the campaign, they had eight. BB, as an Israeli described it, I, I, this is a metaphor that works in, in Hebrew. If somebody is having a nice uh, um, cup of Diet Coke in the in the summer. So he comes with a straw and he just <laughs> steals all your all your liquid from you. Bibi took a straw, went to Naftali Bennett's party, and sucked all his power out of his out of his party. That that metaphor works in Hebrew. That's what Bibi did to Naftali. He did to Lieberman. He went shopping. He took some kachlum, and he built this gigantic party with thirty mandates. That, according to many speculations, was supposed to achieve to get seventeen mandates. It's quite a move. I get the sense that the uh, Haredi are not particularly tolerant of the secular Israelis for not being observant. And the secular Israelis are not particularly tolerant of the Haredi for their being observant. And I wonder how you get two intolerant groups to tolerate each other. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's even worse than you think. Because the Haredi community suffered is is a community that's suffering from the following problem. Its economic model collapsed, but the ideology that created the economic model is still alive. I mean, the economic model that will learn and not work, and if you learn Torah... See, there is a, 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 a source in the Chilta de Rabbi Ishmael, in a rabbinic source, saying the following, Lo nitna Torah, ela le'ochlei haman. In Hebrew, in English... The Torah was given to people eating man or man, like, and that's a metaphor. If you learn in the desert, you receive the Torah. Why were we able to receive the Torah? Because we didn't work. We were focused spiritually. And guess what? The person who said that says, whoever throughout the generations will focus on learning Torah has nothing to worry. Will always receive. Mana. And guess what? There's an entire community in Israel that doesn't work, and it works. <laughs> they receive man. They receive man. They receive food from heavens or from the Israeli taxpayers, but it works. But it works. So that's a theology, a theology. You don't work, and it works. That's a theology. It's not working, meaning the economics are changing. The theology is not changing. In order for the theology to change, in order to enable the economic move, 
Uh, Amos Oz, an Israeli poet, had a great observation. He said, we had many immigration waves to Israel, the last being the great Russian immigration. The next immigration to Israel will be from Bnei Brak. <laughs> the next immigration to Israel will be from the Haredi community, immigrating into Israel. But for that to happen, their theology has to change. For that to happen, they have to leadership that will lead that change. There's only one problem. Their leadership died. Recently, their leadership died. What? Well, hey, the Sephardi leadership was led by the great Rav Ovadi Yosef. He died, no real replacement. The Ashkenazi leadership was led by Rav Yoshiv. There's two leaders trying to replace him. One is a Rav Steinman from Bnei Brak. Another is a Rav Orbach from Jerusalem. And they're both trying to inherit the power of Rav Yoshiv. And they're attacking each other. And everyone has his own newspaper that was built in order to attack the other guy with his own newspaper. And you know what happens when two great rabbis attack each other? It weakens each other's authority. They're suffering from a collapse of leadership. And guess what? These young rabbis trying to inherit Rav Yoshiv, one is 97 and one is 91. <laughs> That's the future. That's the young, new leadership. So what happens when they... So the Haredim are suffering, and here's the problem with Haredim, in a time where they need leadership, because it's a time of change, they don't have leadership. So the Haredi community is a community which we like to attack and despise. We actually... They're going, through a, they're, they're going through an earthquake now. They're a time of change with no leaders for that change. And I think that, as Israelis, I think instead of attacking them, I think we should start listening to them. I think I'll take one last question and then I'll ask the last one. David Schultz, your hands up. I couldn't go back to the Iran. There was one last question here. Okay, yeah. Uh, is there somewhat of an inconsistency in Russia and China will not agree to sanctions. How will sanctions be a threat to the Iranians if they pursue secret stuff? And wasn't it the fact that over the years, the threat of Israel attacking Iran was used by the U.S. and others mm-hmm. to persuade the world to impose sanctions? Mm-hmm. That option's off the table. Why are you so confident that the sanctions could be reimposed? And if they can't, what That's kind a of good question. It's a good question. This is something that I think, here's, I think Netanyahu, and this is, I'm, it's just me, I'm no one. I mean, my, my voice on this matter is a real minority in Israel. But if Netanyahu, instead of um, challenging the administration, attacking the administration, would work with the administration, not against the deal, but trying to shape a better deal, how do we offer, turn all these strike a deal with Russia and China to lift the sanctions and keep them on hold. And the minute we find the Iranians are cheating, we impose the sanctions. And the Israeli Mossad has a great job. We have to catch them cheating. Let all the Israeli and world, uh, let all the spy agencies of the world try to catch them cheating. Let the Iranians know that everyone is waiting for them to cheat. And that the bad life they have for so many years might come back in a minute. Let's create that world. Let's create that world. That doesn't mean with 6,000 centrifuges that they have now, this deal is enough centrifuges to produce plutonium that will lead to a bomb in a few months. It's not crippling their ability, but we could shape it in a way that will cripple their motivation to do it. So I think that's a better way out for 10 years to knock their motivation out, not their ability, and 10 years from now, if there's no regime change, we'll have to rethink everything all over again.
But we'll be in the same place we're at today anyway. Micha, last question. Yes. So last night you talked about the Rambam. It's a very rational conversation. Yes. Tonight uh, you talked about uh, these political issues, current issues of, of modern day Israel today. Very rational conversation. Um, is there any room in your own worldview for kind of the, the mystical, the non-rational that could still be real? Well, when it comes to religion, if everything makes sense, because I'm, I'm, I'm an idiot. And when it comes to Israel, everything makes sense because we could just try to understand everything so there's no room for mystery in our lives and Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> but since mystery is a part of our life, I think in some sense that the role of religion, our Western life, is so much about it's so rational and it's so much about control. We want to understand everything partially because we want to control everything. And we have the ability to control more and more. Is there room, therapeutic room in our life for moments where we're not in control? Which means moments where we don't understand. Maybe, maybe as opposed to Rambam, that's the role of religion. To create islands of our life that are irrational in such a rational life. Islands are in a life where we're not really in control, in a world where we have so much control. I'll share with you one story. The moment when I, re when I realized that the truth is we don't control our life was in the funeral of my, of 14 years ago, my youngest brother, Tani, passed away from a freak accident. And I remember the funeral realizing we have, there's nothing we can control, we really don't control. 13 years pass, oh, oh, 14 years pass. I was in a tour, speaking tour, in the other side of America, in the um, uh, Ocean County, Orange County, sorry, LA, San Francisco, Palo Alto, it was a week, I had some lectures there. There's a large Israeli community in Palo Alto. This was three months ago. And I know when I finish my, my, my talk in Palo Alto, there's no time. I have to rush to the airport to take a plane to San Francisco, to take a plane to Newark, to take a plane to Tel Aviv, to take a cab to the graveyard because it's a yurtite of Tani. So I take my suitcase with me to my last lecture in Palo Alto. And I know, okay, I'm giving this. I said to myself, after this lecture, Tani, here I come. So I give this lecture, and it was in, in Palo Alto. There's a gigantic Israeli community because all the startup nation. And it turns out that um, there is, in, in, I guess in California, there's a TV station that shows Israeli TV shows, reruns. And a TV show that I'm on is like the most popular TV show. <laughs> there is reruns. So like, I'm like, you know, so all the Israelis came out. <laughs> like, nobody sees this show in Israel. But in Palo Alto, I'm like a celebrity. So I was like, yeah, hey. So I'm like, yeah. 
That's how Yemen is. So they all come out, and it was really nice, and, and, and 70% were Hebrew speakers, 30% were English speakers. I spoke in English, but with jokes in Hebrew. That only, it was really nice. And, it was, and in the end, and, and my suitcase is in the door, because I have to rush from here, and there's no time for Q&A, and I have to rush from here. So I end my, my talk, and I go to the door, pick up my suitcase, realizing I have to rush to the airport, San Francisco, Newark, Tel Aviv, the graveyard, starting my way back. And someone comes up to me, and she says to me, Micha, do you, you won't remember me, but I was your brother's Tani's friend. And I just sent an email to your mom 14 years later saying how much Tani meant, and I just... And I just wanted to tell you how much Tani, what Tani means for me. And that was the last person I saw on that trip. I said, thank you so much. And she sent me off to Tani's yard site. I go to San, Palo Alto Airport, San Francisco, Newark, Tel Aviv. <laughs> I make it to the graveyard. I see my mom. My mom, my mom shows me this beautiful email she received from someone that knew Tani 14 years ago. She shows this email. I leave Palo Alto when I meet that young woman. Come to the graveyard in Jerusalem to see her email. So I was asking myself of that day over my brother's grave. Maybe there's room for... Was this a tremendous coincidence? Or did something just happen here? We all have these coincidences in our lives. We all have moments that we realize that maybe there's something bigger than us. That maybe we can't explain everything. That maybe we're not in complete control. So to your question, Wes, is everything explainable? Is everything rational? Can we control everything? Yesterday we tried to understand religion, today Israel. But the truth is, maybe we don't really know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, we now remain uh, the wish from our